This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. podcast where we read the book and then see the movie i'm james and i'm luke and this week we discuss mike flanagan's 2019 film dr sleep all right so back to this sacred project back to the shining <laughs> back uh-huh. to dr sleep back to the overlook um this We're is back. gonna be the end of the coverage here this is the this is the last one so it's a little bittersweet kind of kind of feels similar to when we covered it chapter two yeah in some ways i mean what, what was the hashtag dare to go back or I can't remember something like that online. So I think uh, that was it. Yeah. yeah, we dared. We dared and we did it. Um, I dared. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm, by box office numbers, uh, not many people apparently dared, but uh, we can get into that. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 having some interesting response because I've, I feel like what I'm seeing is tons of people just loving this movie. And then at the same time, I see the box office and it's right. it's like worrying. It's like, what does that mean for... Yeah for movies right now and like i guess it's also i've been thinking a lot about like who who this movie was for and like who could have been marketed to and like maybe that has something to play with it like you know and then i started thinking about the title i heard somebody on talking about the title and how it it seemed like a hard sell a little bit hmm i mean just to get into it a little i guess i was sort of perplexed by this movie after i got out of it and it took me a like a day or two to process it and figure out what is going on with it that I was reacting to. And mm-hmm. I think I have arrived though. And that's one of the things that makes me excited to record this episode is I think I figured it out. Like, I think I've got this movie's yeah. number now. Um, yeah. But at first I did not. So I'm excited to sort of get into that. But I also am curious to see, because I feel like one of the, one of the good things about our podcast is that uh, our, our tastes align enough to where we have like a really common ground in which we can talk about things, but differ enough to where it gives us enough room to, to have a discussion, right? But in mm-hmm. general, I, I, I normally feel like I have a good sense for how you're going to feel about a movie um, or, or a book even. And, um, I, you know, occasionally I'm wrong a little bit, but usually I feel like it's pretty close. But um, I, was, I was definitely a little, you know, had a little bit of trepidation coming into this. I'm really curious to see how you feel about this movie and how that lines up with how I feel, because it could be like we're right on with each other's or it could be completely different. So uh, I'm kind of fascinated to see where we're at. I think you posing that kind of uh, opened the door to show me kind of how you felt about it. Yeah. Um, well, don't don't let that I, I affect would... you. I really want to know just your pure reaction. Yeah. Yeah. The overall word that I kept using was mixed, <laughs> very mixed. OK. Um, and interestingly, I kept I kept saying it was. I kept using this phrase, and I don't know if this really encompasses exactly what I'm trying to say, but I felt like this movie was a really interesting experiment. I think there was the battle between it being its own story, it trying to find its own footing from Stephen King, and it trying to also please fans of the of Kubrick's Shining film. Um, I felt that some of the movie was was pretty indulgent, and and I was surprised to feel that way because I I. There were certain things that I felt like I wanted, and we talked about it in our coverage from from the book. And I was surprised that there was less of it. 
Um, and I was surprised at certain things that they did and s- certain ways characters ended up in the story of Dr. Sleep. Uh, and it was interesting to see some of the things that I that I wondered about changed in this movie mm. and interesting to see my reaction to it. So I would say overall mixed. I, I, I sounds like I said a lot of things that I didn't like so far. So I would say that like as as it stands on its own, like I think it's a great adaptation of Dr. Sleep. Um, I think it is a weird sequel to The Shining, <laughs> kind of. Uh, but I overall enjoyed it. I think I left the movie having like happy that I saw it, happy that it exists, um, but also not feeling like it. I mean, and this was to be expected, but not feeling like it really held a candle to the, the original Shining. And uh, but I was I, I don't know. I think there were some like winks and nods. And I, I think the main thing that I walked away with is like if you were going to make a fan film of The Shining and and do it in in way of adapting Doctor Sleep. I think that Flanagan had like a big f- shoes to fill and was able to execute both the book and a sequel to Kubrick's film while also making a serviceable movie that I enjoyed um but was kind of um not fully taken with. Okay. Uh, I would say that that is pretty close to what I thought you might, how, how, where you were going to be, you know, and, and, and um, I, I'm glad to see that I, that I at least know you well enough to know that, that you would have some misgivings about this movie, right? Like it wasn't just like, oh, I absolutely love it. Um, so before I want to get into like sort of my general stuff, I just want to set up the podcast a little bit in case someone's checking this out. Um, we covered the book over two episodes prior to this. Um, so if you want to hear us get into like the nitty gritties of Dr. Sleep as a piece of work, um, especially the book version, um, that's probably going to be the best place for that. Uh, we're going to talk about non-spoiler thoughts here at the top as much as possible in very general terms. Then we'll get into some stuff about uh, Mike Flanagan, the director, and then we'll move into spoiler thoughts uh, for the plot just so you can kind of know what to expect. Um, we'll definitely put that in the show notes and we'll make clear when we're going to start talking heavy spoilers. All right. So all that being said, um, yeah, I like I said, I was perplexed by this movie because I came out of it after having read all this stuff on Twitter that was really, for the most part, overwhelmingly positive. It was a lot of people saying it was, you know, it was a loving homage. It was a great sequel. It was um, a beautiful movie. It was a perfect Stephen King adaptation. I mean, a lot of people were very superlative in their in their love of this movie. However, I was also reading that it was underperforming. Um, now, I don't know if that's really true, but it looks like it's it was at least half of like what they were expecting. Like it was coming in, it was coming in pretty low. It wasn't a massive budget to begin with, so it seems like it's not like a huge flop in that sense. But it just isn't. It wasn't reaching expectations. And so it seemed like these two things were really at odds with each other. And I saw other people kind of reacting to that and going like, why is this happening? Because this movie is good, right? And so then that kind of got me thinking like, what's going on here? And I think you hit the nail on the head too, that it is a weird sequel to The Shining. And I, God, I, have, a, I have so many thoughts trying to put them in order and in a way to present them and make sense and not touch on spoilers. Um, okay, so my biggest comparison point was two of my most beloved sequels are uh, Aliens to Alien and uh, one of the ones we covered recently, Blade Runner 2049 to the original Blade Runner. And when I when I thought about those two movies, um, they're, they're kind of different in the way they approached being a sequel. Um, Blade Runner, the original sci-fi 
you know, 1982 version is sort of an art house sci-fi film, right? And Denis Villeneuve came in and made an art house sci-fi film to be the sequel. And he 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 came in with his with his vision and he was sort of uncompromising and he was in the world of Blade Runner 2040 or Blade Runner and he was playing with a lot of the same themes but it was its own movie strongly so. And it felt like an appropriate sequel to me because it kept that art house spirit alive. Now, this movie doesn't to me that's the main thing that it doesn't do is to me The Shining is an art house horror film. And this movie is a horror film but it is not art house. And I think that is the main thing that, that hit me and didn't feel right. And so then I thought about aliens because I said, well, aliens kind of did this too, right? Like the original alien is, is a much more like tense, close, slow pace, psychological horror set in space. And then James Cameron came in and made more of an action horror, right? And aliens. And, and I feel like that movie works. And so I thought, like, okay, you can change, fundamentally change what kind of story you're telling here, yet still feel like a really good sequel. So why does that movie work and not give me qualms, whereas this movie did? And I think it's it has to do with um, camp and fan service and um, reference and how much you use those things. Because the one thing Aliens didn't do, in my opinion, is it didn't try and recreate scenes from the original too much. It didn't try and reference over and over and over again the original movie. It, it sort of stood on its own as its own thing, even though it was a different genre, and it was based off the same the same stuff. Now, I'm talking about, I mean, we're getting into all kinds of movies and stuff, so I know this is huge, but this movie, on the other hand, I think relies too heavily on references, visual references, um, even just like blatant, like this is the same as what you saw, right? And then um, fan service is the only way I can think of it. There was there was a lot of shining fan service, like just sort of uh, showing you things and going like, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Remember that from The Shining? And there was a lot of that that um, it felt, it just felt like diametrically opposite from an art house uh, experiment that, that Kubrick was essentially doing with the original adaptation. So that's a lot to say, and it's something I'll try and unpack throughout the rest of this episode, but what, what's your initial thoughts about, about that reading of this movie? Yeah, so the first thing I would say to that is is I, I listened to a couple of interviews with like Mike Flanagan and some of the producers, and I think that they realized they very much couldn't approach the movie as they couldn't, they shouldn't try to emulate Kubrick and make like a Kubrick film because they would just fail like from the start i think that that, like that was wise um and so what i think we we're seeing is a filmmaker who like you said is maybe accustomed to making a certain type of of horror film coming in and putting his own spin on it and like putting his mark on a film um while also trying to like pay homage and like reference and do all these things with the kubrick stuff and 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 i think very specifically like adapt dr sleep almost exactly how it is on the page there are some slight differences here and there um and really i think the the film was able to show me like there's in terms of like the book and the and the movie being so different there's there's obviously like character differences and build-up differences but just like the ending being different wasn't that big of a of an issue i feel like with what they wanted to do in this film I think the comparisons are definitely there to be made by like a different voice coming in and, and directing a film, like in the example of like Blade Runner and, and uh, Alien. But uh, 
with this, it's almost like trying to not only change the voice of one project, but two projects. So I don't know. I think I, I will like give them credit for the fact that like they they didn't try to make a Kubrick film. They didn't try to go art house with it. They they went they played to their own style, like Mike Flanagan played to his own style um, and like made it his own film. And I think for most of it, for majority of it, it is just a Mike Flanagan Doctor Sleep film that doesn't feel like it's really that connected to to The Shining until until it is, you know, until they go in and try to try to make it specifically with a couple of things like a Shining sequel. Right. Uh, I, I mean, you're not wrong, and and I I know every a lot of stuff I've said is is, is very critical. Um, and I think you know you said it best, and you said mixed was sort of my reaction to this movie, and it was. Um, but that doesn't mean that I, there wasn't a lot of things to like there. I do think it was a good adaptation of the book um i don't know that it completely nailed everything um which i can get into more specifics when we get into spoilers as to why but i think a lot of the doctor sleep direct adaptation stuff was some of the best stuff i think we had some really excellent performances um especially uh rebecca ferguson as rose the hat um, I thought was easily the best performance I think in this movie for me. Uh, it was, ex- she was ex- yeah, she was awesome, extremely good, um, very captivating. Did a lot of work, uh, kind of being the villain in this movie, right? Like had to carry a lot of weight there. Um, a lot of the stuff between her and Abra is some of the strongest stuff in this movie, in my opinion. And then I think the real nexus of whether or not you're going to love this movie. Or or be like me and and feel very mixed about it is how you feel about the third act of the film, which we'll have to save a little bit for spoilers, I think, because that's where a lot of changes were made. That's where the heaviest homage happens. um, And that's where, in my opinion, it feels like the movie's trying to do a lot and whether or not you feel like personally it works for you or if it doesn't work for you is where you're going to is going to affect how you feel about this movie. But yeah, let me come back around a little bit to my art house stuff um, well, before we get into spoilers, just because I want to I want to dig into that just a little bit more. And I found this definition of art house because I felt like I wasn't like super comfortable defining what I mean by that. But I think it's useful to talk about. So uh, I went to I found this website called wonderfulcinema.com and they gave this definition of art house. Art house is a film genre which encompasses films where the content and style, often artistic or experimental, adhere with as little compromise as possible to the filmmaker's personal artistic vision. And I think that's a pretty good definition. Um, It goes on to sort of explore that, right, and talk about examples and talk about what that means. But I think that's a good place to look at is it's a very auteur-driven, visionary director comes in, has a very specific story they want to tell, and then they're sort of uncompromising in the way they do it. And... The Shining has always been an interesting um, case study because it is in some ways a blend because it's that, but it's also a horror movie and it is, which is, you know, sometimes considered uh, more of a, like a populist uh, genre, whether or not that's fair. And then it is, um, it is also an adaptation of a book. So it's struggling sort of with all three of these things to come together. And I think um, if you love The Shining because it is a horror movie that scared you, and you love The Shining because the creepy hotel, then this movie is going to play really well for you. 
if at your core you you like The Shining or love The Shining because of its art house nature, because of the layered meanings, because of repeat viewings, because of the question of is there or isn't there something supernatural going on, and 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 you love like all of that stuff going on in the movie, then I think this movie isn't going to land with you as well. And what's interesting is I believe their advertising uh, campaign showed what kind of movie this is. And it showed that this is a movie that's going to have the creepy twins in it. This is a movie where we're going to reference, we're going to we're going to we're going to show you all the all your favorite scenes from The Shining, we're going to and we're going to tell the story, right? Um and I think it signaled to people who like the art house nature of of The Shining that this wasn't a movie they were going to be interested in seeing. So I think a lot of people who fall into that camp did not come out to see this movie. And I think that's one of the reasons why the box office numbers were not as high. Yeah. I found myself, and and this is to like kind of, you know, when we covered this project, which the project that I'm referencing is Ready Player One, there was a scene very specifically that both you and I enjoyed and we thought right. was really fun and interesting and cool. Um, and I made the comparison after having seen this that it felt almost like something you would have seen in Ready Player One. Like some of the stuff that went on in this film felt a lot like it's like not like somebody like you talked about art house it's not like somebody experimenting it's not like somebody being um you know using their vision to do something weird and different i know i say weird and different a lot on this podcast but i feel like that's kind of like what like uniqueness and and something like that something like a filmmaker a film by a filmmaker like kubrick is very specific in its in its in it what it's trying to do right so he he in knows the artistic vision right it's uncompromising Right. Right. So from the get go, like, you know, that his like, like, as you said, uncompromising in every way, but you know that it's going to be something unlike anything you've seen before. Whereas I feel like if you come into this film, like you've been saying, it is it is similar to other films that you've seen before. And I think some of the novelty of The Shining being a Kubrick film is that like you can't define it. It's undefinable. It's not really a horror movie. There are people who watch that movie and they're like, it wasn't scary at all. There yeah. are people who think it's the scariest thing they've ever seen, and I think yep. that this just—it's—it's a mark of a of like an interesting film and something that takes risks and swings really, really hard to to give you something that you've never seen before. Um, and that's not to say that this this movie can't also exist. I just th- I just think that this movie was trying to accomplish something different. Um, I think this is I think if you're a fan of The Shining, as you said, I think you would enjoy this. If you are someone who is like steeped in in kubrick films i I, like you said you may not be as excited about something like this um i also think that there's there's a way to be both right like you can you can be a huge kubrick fan and then take this movie with a grain of salt and enjoy it for the fact that it's fans looking up to their idols and standing on the shoulders of giants and really like turning in something something interesting to talk about and it's and i think that this movie is another great excuse to go rewatch the shining yeah, and I do agree with everything you're saying. Um, my only pushback to that is once again that we have seen something like Blade Runner 2049 come out, and um, now there were a lot of people who weren't who didn't jive with that movie, right? And and it wasn't what they wanted from a from a Blade Runner sequel. And I wonder if if maybe they were wanting something more like what this movie does, right? That more directly references the original. You have scenes being recreative. Uh, sort of the way uh, the Force Awakens does does this to the original trilogy, and especially uh, what Episode Four of Star Wars, right? Like, there's a lot of direct callbacks in the construction of the film and scenes and and all this stuff, right? Um, and I think, but I also think it's very clear that we're living in a society that thrives on that right now, right? Like, so it's like audiences are very into that. 
Okay, but then you look at something like... Now, okay, this is probably a bad example because I haven't seen it. <laughs> but uh, The Joker is gangbusters mm. right now. Um, the new Joker film has made tons of money. I haven't seen it, but I want to because i can tell that it's it's an art house movie like i can tell that from the trailers it's it's it is it is uncompromising in many ways and you're gonna you're it just feels like if you take that movie and then you instead change it into a sequel to um say say uh the dark knight and you make it to where a movie was instead of making the movie that you got, it's instead all about referencing the Dark Knight and recreating scenes from the Dark Knight and paying homage to the Dark Knight. But it's not that. You know what I mean? I think it's funny that you you bring up Joker, though, because interestingly enough, there's more parallels to something like this than than I think is apparent because I think very clearly Joker is is an homage and like a it's a martin scorsese film it, it's taxi driver nearly so it's like the idea of like getting something repetitive that you've seen before but put slapping a nice label on it that people would go see in theaters it's almost like an art house film that has like a, a name behind it that would that would draw an audience you know what i mean like i think it's somebody using this idea of like making a movie very similar to their heroes so like this director making a movie very similar to a Scorsese film and then putting a name like Joker on it and, and making it like basically adjacent to a superhero world. You're playing with art house and what appeals to audiences right now and the yeah. references and all that kind of so stuff. So in some ways, maybe a bad example, but like I said, I haven't seen it. So I'm going to struggle to, to maybe use specific uh, ways to, to link those two. But um, I don't know. I just, I just keep thinking about like how maybe it is asking a lot to expect someone to be able to come along and, and, do another auteur vision of a of an adaptation that is in itself a sequel like that is a lot to ask but but i don't think it's beyond the pale to for moviegoers to want something like that for a shining sequel like i think people might genuinely want another just like life-changing experience with a movie and if they go in thinking like if you're going to do a sequel to the shining it better be that and then they see this they're going to be disappointed look i i wish that we had that movie instead right like that that's the movie i would have liked to have seen as well and i think a lot of people feel that way and i think a lot of those people didn't go see this movie it's like trying to trying to recreate kubrick i feel like would have been would have been really tough but yeah i mean i agree with you like if if you were going to make something that's like in the same vein as something like a blade runner 2049 where you like are basically, like you said, and like, I don't know, some people may say that like Blade Runner 2049 suffered at the box office because it wasn't marketable enough. Right. And like, you know, so it's like there's a fine line somewhere in there where it's like it, it could be art house, but also profitable and, and all of these things. But ultimately, like I would have rather seen something more art house and something more uh, in line with with what we'd already gotten before with like something experimental, something new, something different. And yeah, so like I, I mentioned earlier that that I felt that this was an interesting experiment, and I kept saying experiment because it did it felt fan made. It felt in some ways like it's, I guess when it starts to get very shining heavy, it felt like as an as a director, Flanagan was saying like how much fun would it be to revisit these places we've been to before? They, I mean, the sets were recreated like these. Yeah. They like redid it all, and and uh, in terms of shots moved used in the movie, I think there's only a couple that were used from from Kubrick's footage so it's like not only did they so it's like it's nearly like just recreating it in a Mm -hmm. way and i i don't know i i think that that's an interesting uh thing to do and i think you know we'll talk about more with like the the recasting of the actors in certain roles and and like a lot of these decisions that were made 
I think that it, it was an experiment. I think ultimately that's what it comes down to. And I think audiences maybe aren't uh, responding to it as well as people would have liked. But oh, I think well, at the I same mean, time... And, and the caveat of that is that people are liking this movie who saw it. Right. It's interesting because it's a lot of self-selection, I think. I think a lot of people who knew they weren't going to like this movie didn't go see it. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think that's that's the case here. And, and I don't know if it's that... I don't know, because I wouldn't expect it to completely bomb, though, if it, if it was like audiences were... Because were, it's not like the the super fans are that large of a group of people, I would you would think. I th- would think like a more general audience would be interested in it. But like I said, maybe maybe it is the fact that like other people, like certain people in a more general audience haven't seen The Shining or aren't as clicked in with The Shining and and that makes them not interested yeah. in going to I, see I it. Think, I think that is part of it, too, is, the, is the, the fact that you're making a sequel to a movie that was made in 1980 and it's almost 2020 now. Right. right. So it's almost 40 years old. And that, that was something I think that Blade Runner also hit hit. Right. Like a lot of younger people just haven't seen The Shining. Sad as it sounds, you know, like it's just true. And a lot yeah. of people hadn't seen Blade Runner. So if you haven't even seen the thing that it's referencing, you're probably going to immediately go, well, this isn't for me. With all of this comparison, I would like to say that we are I, I think it's interesting to compare the two and we're going to continue to compare the shining and and dr dr sleep uh like kubrick's the shining but i i also think we it'd be interesting to to put this movie and maybe the first two-thirds of this movie up against other modern horror films um you know because I, I think that i think that in terms of landmark horror like you can't get much further than than the shining so you're kind of you're already having to compare it to the best the best of the best mm-hmm. uh and so I'd like to hear, like, in terms of just, like, what is currently available, like, how you felt about uh, the movie in general. I think I think after that we should move into some of the filmmaker and, and actors and things like that. I, I mean, for one, like, I, I do like horror and watch horror movies. However, um, I, I am behind, I think, is a safe way to say, on a lot of modern horror. Um, I've seen ones here and there, but I don't feel like I'm like super steeped in the modern horror landscape enough to really comment on that. Um, all I can say is that an, as an adaptation of Dr. Sleep, um, it hit almost all the notes I wanted. And it it we talked in, in our book coverage about how Dr. Sleep, the book, is much more of a dark fantasy, in our opinion, than a true horror horror story like the original Shining book was in, in many ways. And this movie, I think, leans into that. It gets very it gets very over the top, right? Like there we have some some for lack of a better word, magical scenes that go on here. Um in a sense, a lot of that worked for me because I was ready for it from having read the book. Um, and, uh, I don't know, I, I guess uh, a lot of that stuff was good. I mean, I, like I said, I already mentioned, I like some of the performances, so I think that carries a lot of it. Um, and I think Ewan McGregor as Danny Torrance w- was, was good. Um, I think some of the stuff he get, he does in the third act is some of the stuff he struggled with most, but I think a lot of the majority of the, the beginning of this movie and the fur in the middle were, was all really, really good for him. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm struggling to talk about it in ways until we really get into spoilers. So we might have to move into that to really get into this. But, uh, what, what, what's your thinking on it? Since it seems like you might have some opinions about that. I just want, I, I just think of like the, the, as you're talking about, I think there's like this huge surge of art, more art house horror that's been coming out recently. And I think that it is like inspired. It's like the kind of art house horror that's like clearly inspired by sort of the tone and, and maybe sort of the, the slow burn nature of a Kubrick film or something like that. Very clearly, I would say that any modern horror film director has seen The Shining and is being influenced by it. Um, and so I just thinking, thinking in terms of like this film, I think, I think what they did here was 
make Dr. Sleep the focus of trying to be a massive blockbuster instead of being maybe a like a maybe approaching it with a smaller budget and yeah. approaching it this with like the lighthouse or or something like that right like a, yeah i think it's just like if it if it I, the reason i think the people are freaking out about it underperforming and the reason i think a lot of people are very and that's the other thing is I think a lot of people are very passionate in terms of liking it and not liking it i think really comes down to the fact that there it's expectations like there's there's they just built expectations that were would have been hard to meet and I think you have a great cast. I think you have great performances. There's a lot of good in this movie, but it's it's so tough because you're comparing it to The Shining and you're expecting a huge a huge turnout. And I think while critical praise isn't what they thought it would be, it's still fair. Like it's still yeah. I think critical critics are still saying that it was like a it was a good representation of a Stephen King novel. Yeah. And then ultimately, I think even like some critics are probably willing to like look at this film and see the third act and even if it may be indulgent, say you know what it's like it's fun and it's referencing and maybe it won't it's not going to stand up and have the like longevity of something like the shining but in terms of like the moment the moment to moment experiences that we're having it's pretty fun to just see something like this exist i agree one last thing before we get into it uh get into spoilers uh i felt like this was going to be one of my first real hot take episodes of the podcast where i felt like i was sort of the outlier um just off of like all the stuff i was seeing right like online and stuff I was I came out of the movie thinking and that's that's another thing is I wanted to mention this before I kept thinking about this is the the expectation that I went into this movie with was really high because I was expecting a sequel to The Shining. I was tempering expectations and then I saw nothing but praise and I yep. thought, oh, my God, they pulled it off. They literally did the, sh the sequel to The Shining and like everyone was talking about how it did did justice to both the book and the movie and, and just I, I had really high expectations, unfortunately, going in. So maybe that had something to do with my reaction to it as well. Yeah. And I think one of the things we should engage with, and this is something that I think is getting a lot of focus, is reconciling Stephen King's issues with the Kubrick film and his novel and how this movie does, is like a bridge that tries to unite the two and how, and I think a lot of people are giving it a lot of credit for that, right? Like if you, if you're aware, yeah. if you're steeped in that and you're a huge Stephen King fan and you are sort of on his side and all this, uh, you can see how this movie was an attempt to sort of unify the film version and the book version and how it does a lot of work to join those two. And, and I think a lot of people give it a lot of credit for that. And, and, and I think it's definitely something interesting to talk about, but we will have to probably get into specifics to really get into it. Yeah. I, th I couldn't help but think which of the two artists was still alive and like collaborating with somebody who are you going to collaborate with? Who would you, who are you going to lean towards? I couldn't help but feel like um, Flanagan was like, well, I've already adapted some other Stephen King stuff. I, enjoys obviously we all and we, we enjoy his stories they're great stories um there's but like people also enjoyed like the difference of the kubrick stuff so uh although they did you know lean into some of the kubrick stuff i think that with the with stephen king still being alive and like getting his blessing on this movie i think that it was uh there were steps being taken to kind of, like you said, like bridge the gap and make it more of like a stephen king adaptation like look this, these are stephen king stories yeah no, I'm with you, man. But we got to we got to move into this bio now. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're just going to quickly go through this. Mike Flanagan, I think, has had a pretty meteoric uh, ascension recently. He is an American filmmaker. He's known for his horror films, all of which he directed, wrote, and edited. Now, very specifically, that's interesting because he he edits these, and I think 
when I was watching Dr. Sleep, I was thinking about that. And it's a very tightly edited film. And I think that like the tension is ratcheted up by the edit. I think that there's a lot of like, um, I mean, and he's having to follow up to the editing of Stanley Kubrick, who was notoriously meticulous and like these like recreations of shots that he's doing and things like that. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it's really interesting when a, a filmmaker really takes the reins and says like, right, direct and edit. That's that's massive. But the ones that he's known for uh, 2011, he directed Absentia. And then the first time I heard of him was Oculus in 2013. And that, that movie did pretty well. And I think people were kind of surprised by it. And then he got a deal with Netflix and he made Hush. Have you ever heard of this one? Heard of it. Haven't seen it's it. The, yeah. I mean, it, I enjoyed it. It was like a, it was a fun Netflix watch, you know, like it's like when you turn on Netflix, and you find something fun to watch and you're surprised. That one really surprised me. And I had a good time with it, like knowing what it was going in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, he had Before I Wake, uh, Ouija, Origin of Evil, which I haven't seen, but people really were into. Um uh, Gerald's Game recently, which King was the, the, yep. the other King adaptation, and it was on Netflix as well. And then Doctor Sleep. So he he really went from smaller horror films up to like basically is like we talked about. This was meant to be a blockbuster horror film. Now I I'm, I might be completely wrong about this, so we can edit it out if, if need be. But is he uh, was he connected to uh, the Haunting of Hill House show? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Okay, I thought so. I haven't seen that show either because we might cover it, so I've been putting it off. So it's funny because like I'm realizing I, I don't think I've seen any of his stuff. I think this is the first movie I've seen from Mike Flanagan. Yeah, and like I, I would say that like he's he's becoming like the Stephen King ad- adapter, right? Like he's he's had multiple at this point. Um, yeah, Haunting of Hill House is like we we missed it on initial when it was initially coming out because we were covering something else. Yeah. But I think it'd be fun to revisit. I know a lot of people were super into it, and that's one that I've been dying to watch. I've heard a lot of good things um, about that show. Exactly. So I, I would love to at some point. So hopefully we get the chance. Uh, yeah, I, I just I think that it's really interesting to see a filmmaker come up and be like, I'm a horror director and stick to horror. Yeah. Um, I think there's something nice about that. It's like it's not to say that he can't branch out whenever he wants to. But like, I think that I love to see strong voices in horror. Yeah, I agree with that. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it seems like a, an up and comer that uh, is going to be one to watch as we go forward. Absolutely. I just to talk to to talk about some of like what I was realizing, what I've heard in interviews, what he feels is important. Um, in his directing, people have said that um, he focuses on character themes. Um, the the horror lacks. Um, there's not a lot of jump scares. It's like a very like old school style of of horror, kind of like atmospheric horror. I in an interview he was talking about how like why he's so like he's always felt that like Stephen King was the beacon to look at when you're thinking of like character driven horror and how like it's almost like the horror is like something that just is sprinkled into a Stephen King story because it's a, a wrapped around addiction or it's wrapped around like cycles of violence things like this um, so I think it's cool to see somebody who has that kind of a grasp on on what makes strong horror films directing a Stephen King adaptation because I feel like they're very much on the same wavelength whereas I feel like if you had asked Kubrick what he was trying to do he he was more interested in in creating an experience and maybe less focusing on like building backstory and building motivations and things like that but although like there are clearly motivations in that film that's not to really take away from it I just think that uh in terms of like Stephen King's criticism of the of Kubrick's The Shining as well, he just feels like there's not a lot of character there or character arcs being being uh, delivered. Well, I, specifically in Jack Torrance, um, we talked about that on our Shining coverage, which we 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 had a lot of fun doing. But specifically that that King thought that Jack Torrance was 
demonstrably evil from the beginning and had and had sort of a flat arc throughout the movie. Um, and we talked about how, you know, he, he was operating differently. But I, I don't know that I completely I mean, you're not saying this, but I, I think, you know, Kubrick's Shining is sort of a character study, too, though. Um, if you just look at like so the psychological terror and the domestic violence inherent in what we're watching unfold and how uncomfortable it makes you. Because I think that's yeah. one of the key things that plays on your terror is the fact that you see a man abusing his family and how just visceral that is, right? And that's some of the darkest horror of The Shining. And that only works if you if you are really good at character. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like what I was saying may, maybe came off wrong. I think what, more of what I'm trying to say is like he... Um, he has the characters in a different situation, right? Like he has his characters maybe in a different, I don't think that there's necessarily an arc that goes down as much as there's like a spiral. Like we're not seeing like victories that lead into like changes in character that lead into learning and developing and changing. Mm -hmm. It's more of just like um, having somebody already at the edge and then pushing them over the edge and, and like seeing what that, what that looks like and how terrifying that can be. So yeah, you're definitely right. Yeah, man. All right. We got to get into spoilers here. I, I'm so ready. All right, so I have a couple sections here. They're probably going to be pretty hefty chunks, but we'll try to talk about everything. So in 1980, sometime after escaping the Overlook Hotel, Danny Torrance and his mother Wendy live in Florida. Scarred by his experiences at the hotel, Danny is haunted by one of its ghosts, the rotting woman of room 237. Through The Shining, the ghost of Dick Halloran teaches him to lock up ghosts in imaginary boxes in his mind. Meanwhile, a cult of quasi-immortals known as the True Knot, led by Rose the Hat, feed on steam to slow their aging. In 2011, Danny, now going by Dan, is still traumatized by his time at the Overlook, and he's become an alcoholic to, to suppress his shining. He moves to a small town and befriends Billy Freeman, who gets him a job and becomes his AA sponsor. Dan begins to rehabilitate and soon finds a job at a hospice where there is a cat who goes to patients who are dying. Danny uses his shining abilities to comfort dying patients who give him the nickname Dr. Sleep. He also begins receiving telepathic communications from Abra Stone, a young girl who's shining is even more powerful than his. Okay, yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> but that's the setup. That's the setup for the movie. So I think that's a good good place to jump in. So how did you, at the immediate question, how did you feel about the uh, recasting of the iconic characters from The Shining with different actors and, and but trying to evoke them, you know, very, very strongly, right? Yeah, um... I would say it's jarring. I don't think there's any way around it being jarring. It's it just it feels weird. It uh I I became used to it and didn't mind it as much, but and I think I would have I think I prefer this to like CGI like de-aging like or doing fake. something weird to yeah, to, to basically yeah. just like bring the characters back. I, they, I, they could have put a deep fake over these actors' faces of, of the original and it would have been real weird, but they could have probably done yeah. it. They have the tech. I don't know if there's like legality issues with that, but they probably could have done it. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't work. It's weird. It's like soulless robotic stuff. I don't know. It's like, I, I think like I prefer this sort of recasting to the CGI, like Uncanny Valley that we could be potentially have dropped into or something. But yeah, yeah I mean, I, I don't know. I... It, I'm not going to say it wasn't jarring, but I, I became accustomed to it. And ultimately, it didn't like it didn't ruin the movie for me. How I agree. I agree with that. Initially, it was like, oh, this is weird. You know, like, um, yeah, seeing this person who's it, I kept I kept and this maybe this is unkind, but I kept thinking of cosplay 
I was like, oh look, they're cosplaying yeah. as uh, as Wendy Torrance, and you know what I mean, <laughs> as Dick Halloran. Awesome. I couldn't yeah. stop thinking that. Um, like if if I saw this person at a convention, I'd be like, oh, that's a really good, you know, Dick Halloran or a really good Wendy Torrance. It it, it just it, and I struggled to get over the hump of like, no, no, this is them in this universe. Um, but I was able to get there. Um, and since we're in the spoiler section, I, you know, I, I'm going to reference also later with the Jack Torrance we got, um, was one of the other ones that I really struggled with, um, but was able to sort of accept, but like, yeah, I mean, it was essentially to me, I kept thinking like, well, let's Jack Torrance cosplay, you know, there it is. Um, but it didn't feel like him in the way that I wanted it to, I guess I struggled a little bit with it. I agree with that. But I think they did something where they kind of lampshaded. It's like maybe it isn't him and they're trying to like evoke two characters at the same time um, and like get away with it in a way. Okay, uh, interesting. I, that one that one was the hardest for me to to, I think, deal with was the Jack Torrance one. Well, and also they kept showing iconic scenes from The Shining that they had reshot with the new actors. Right. Again, a fun experiment. Like, I would love to do that. I would love to reshoot these scenes as well. Yeah. But I don't know if it's necessarily and, and needed. I think for... when you were talking about indulgent that's some of the yeah. stuff that felt indulgent to me. Now I understand like maybe they they really feel like they need to remind the audience, but um, yeah, I, 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 those, those scenes felt very bizarre to me. I, I just almost felt like with this, we're already jumping all the way to the end, but I'm just going to leave it with this statement. I felt like this was a scenario where less could have been more. And I think like we got a lot at the end and we could have, it could have been, fun to get maybe a little less yeah. uh and you know that's something that we talked about in the other coverage was like i said i had said like i was expecting more shining stuff in 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 stephen king's book you and mean more overlook really hotel overlook hotel stuff more yeah. Sh- yeah and so we didn't really get very much of it and then we got a lot of it here so i feel like maybe there's like a middle ground somewhere that was missed <laughs> be careful what you wish for is something i wrote on on my in my notes because i remember in our book coverage at the end especially i was talking about all the ways they could have more heavily involved the overlook and and then yeah. i feel like this is like did it you know and it, and and right. uh, maybe it was a little much uh, but anyway yeah let's focus more on the beginning here because i do want to touch on again rose the hat and a lot of the true not stuff was extremely good rebecca ferguson stealing scenes um just captivating to watch um I, I thought uh, Zan McLaren um, was good as Crow Daddy. Um, he is someone who I have taken note of because of his performance in Westworld and Fargo, where I think he's really, really good. Um, I do mm-hmm. think he was maybe a little underutilized. I think he has potential to be significantly more menacing than he was even doing here, um, just especially from like Fargo, what I've seen him do there. Um, and I wish he could have maybe turned it up a notch or two. Uh, and I don't know if that's the character limitations or or story limitations or what. But um, it's one of those things where, like, you see an actor in a, in a, in a role and you think they do a good, pretty good job. But you know that the actor is capable of so much more. And so you're a little sad that you didn't get it. And I, so I felt a little bit that way with him. Yeah, I felt that, like, the main three roles in this movie were really well cast. And there was pretty good performances coming from all three. Um, and then some of the, like you were kind of saying, maybe maybe the other people didn't get quite enough material to, to really shine. Ha ha. Ah, there you go. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk about a couple of things, though. We With the start of the movie, the classic Kubrick score comes in, mm. the, the WB Shield that was in the 1980 version, and then the shots of like leading up to the Overlook, literally the exact same shots. I'm pretty sure. Actually, I know. I read that those are just the exact same shots converted to nighttime put and then digitally they put snow over top of them Mm -hmm. um i mean that that in terms of like getting me excited for a movie 
and uh well that that stuff comes late that stuff comes later in the movie but yeah like specifically the aerial shots that comes when they're when they're go that's when they're going to the overlook in the third act right before they go i thought there. we got i thought we started with a, a couple shots of like flying out across towards the island and then we cut away and then later on they come back and yeah do more you, of the you're shots. right there might be a bit of both but i think yeah. maybe originally it didn't have the darkness and the snow it might have been more just like the same shot early on i don't know i have to see it again that's a, that's a good it's hard to remember some of the stuff at the very beginning of the movie right because the stuff at the end is going to be freshest and you're right mind. yeah so and i have only seen it once yeah i kind of wish i would had been able to see it for a second time before recording but I, that that sort of opening really got me excited and i was like wow this i, I was because ex- you know it was expectations we're at an all-time high i saw a lot of people talking positively about the movie and getting this sort of reference and and i was thinking like this there would be like these massive like drops and then later we get the scene we get another scene that has like some pretty massive references and i felt like that was where we were going to live and then ultimately we dove much further than i thought we would yeah i agree i, w- I was pumped i you know i heard that music and it got me excited and I, and i was i was i was on board Absolutely. How about the idea of navigating the fact that Halloran died in the film uh, and him be coming back as like a shine ghost? Yeah, I thought that was kind of clever, right? Like he was, he was able to sort of keep the scene from the novel that was important, um, yet lean into the idea that he was dead in this version instead of being alive. And I think it worked and honestly was fairly seamless. In my opinion, I don't think much was lost. Yeah. We also, I think fairly early, uh, we get the the scene with... Danny, who has gone to the new cities and Fraser, and he's uh, he meets the doctor, who is very has a massive role in the book, yeah. um, and he does the whole "I know where your watch is" thing, and all of that was building to the same thing that was going to happen in the book. But I was surprised that he was relegated to a certain because it was also a notable actor as well. It was Bruce Greenwood, who who I recognized and was like, yeah, oh, this is a pretty massive actor who could be in this role, and then. Uh, instead of taking on the role, he there's a scene where we, we're in his office when when Dan is trying to uh, become an orderly or he's offering him an orderly job, which like right away I noticed that this is like Ullman's office from the original Shining. Absolutely. And I'm like pointing, I'm like turned to the next person next to me, I'm like pointing, I'm like, look, 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 it's the, th- yeah. it's the room. Now, now, another good question though is like, why? <laughs> yeah. Why was... No, I mean, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it, it's a fun reference, but it felt weird because it was like, it, it was like not even overlook related it was just kind of just tr- there to be like remember the scene where all this stuff happens yeah and that's kind of my issue with it it, it, it was it was a reference for reference sake and it didn't yeah. it didn't seem to have much other because like, it wasn't a clue about the character that we could right. that we could use that to even learn anything about this guy because he was really like an omen in almost no way. So, so there's, yeah. there's not much thematically being lined up there. The only thing that I could maybe say is that Jack Torrance was sort of like taking and going into a new direction for his life when he accepts yeah. the job. And that here, Danny is, is moving into a, a new direction that he's becoming sober, but opposite directions in the sense that Jack Torrance was moving into his own destruction and something terrible. Whereas Danny is, is, right like reclaiming his life so in that sense very different too yeah it seemed like it was i don't know i guess the only other thing really is just that uh it was you know kubrick did a lot to make people feel uneasy when watching the shining maybe this was a decision that that flanagan made in order to be like maybe this will make people feel weird and like this shouldn't be happening and like i I agree with you that it doesn't really necessarily make the most sense but i didn't hate it i just thought it was weird yeah you know, now, I mean, we also get the scene of Danny um, at first being terrified of the woman in the bathtub 
as a child and then learning about the box thing and then and then immediately sort of challenging and 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 like confidently straight you know going into the bathroom capturing the ghost and walking out and sort of quickly moving on from this and and this sort of happens in the book too so it's this isn't um solely a movie thing but to me it, it sort of weakened that being and its power how easily he was able to flip the switch on it. Well, I feel like with a lot of this early stuff, I don't know if you felt the same way, but I felt like, although this movie is long, I felt like there was a lot of it in terms of the story that was being rushed through. Oh, yeah. And I feel like... We got to talk about the the darkest moment in in Danny's life, you know, and what we get on the screen, yeah. Right, and that's what I was going to... That's what I was leading to is this sort of you know it's i think it's built up for a longer period of time it's a pretty significant chunk of the chunk of the book that we're we're with danny and and we're seeing his struggles with alcoholism and how low he is and and like i just felt like we really blew by that i don't know if we really got the significance of that for an audience who maybe didn't read the book i don't know if we really understood how low dan was and how like i mean i guess you know saying like alcoholism and aa and like he had to get sober is like a shorthand way of saying like he was tortured but i really didn't feel like we got the same impact as we had in the in the book i agree um and that was one of the things i think was 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 lacking a little bit but um Ultimately, it, it it still works. It's like shifts the focus a little bit. I think um, his his experiences at the Overlook are reframed as sort of the central darkest moment of his life that he is struggling with as an adult. Um, and so the focus gets put, shifted to that more than what it is in Doctor Sleep, um, whereas it is a dark time in his life. But uh, the his darkest moment is actually what goes on with that with that woman and that child. So. Um, you know, we get into it more in, in the book episodes, but I, I think you kind of had to do that because of how different the ending is for Danny's arc, um, which we can yeah. get into too as we get there. But and we also didn't really get, you know, we didn't get the callback as many times. It was really oh, important yeah. for Stephen well, King to call back like a lot of times, and we really only saw it one other time, I believe. Yeah, there was the, one the reference movie. to them being ghosts, and I, I wonder how clear it is. Now I've only seen the movie once, but I wonder how clear it is to audience goers that she was dead and that child were, were dead and blaming him. Right. And then it wasn't just some sort of weird shining dream that he was having. Exactly. It wasn't just some sort of yeah. nightmare shining thing that, but they were actually dead um, because that I think changes that scene pretty dramatically depending on how you read it. Yeah. So I wanted to move into the next part here in 2019, the true not are starving. They abduct a young boy named Bradley and torture him to death to extract as much steam as they can. A teenage Abra senses the events and her distress alerts both Dan and Rose. Rose sets her sights on Abra, planning to extract her steam to sustain the cult. Realizing that Rose is after her, Abra visits Dan, who insists that she stay away and avoid drawing attention to herself. That night, Rose Rose astral projects into Abra's mind, but is stunned when the girl manages to trap her and briefly enter Rose's mind. Wounded, Rose returns to her body and sends the true knot to capture Abra. Okay, so this is some of my absolute favorite stuff in the movie. Some of these scenes are just fucking cool. And like the the psychic battle stuff was like so well done. Um you know, the that's the stuff I'm gonna remember from this movie, I think. Honestly, that's the memorable moments that were that was unique, that was that was just really, really well done. Yeah, and and like Rose the Hat, like astral projecting and flying across the world and it all that so stuff. Good. Like, that was the way really cool. She like landed on the on the street and stuff after like twisting of the world and like all oh, that looks so yeah. fucking good. 
I thought all of that was going to be the hardest thing for them to pull off as well. Like yeah, that, all of that it. to me felt like that was like, oh, this is going to be really hard to like make an audience understand in like just a visual way. Yep. And totally nailed it. Like you said, yep. that it was super. It was and, really and like when and cool. she screamed to to throw Rose out of her mind, and when she's in the supermarket and the glass exploding, and like the power of that moment was captured yeah. so well. Um, all, doesn't all, and then that's really also good. when she's the same scream she like puts red rum in the in the into danny's wall right which is like you know i mean that's fun like i think that's a cool change it didn't happen in the book and like sort of like calling back he's like all right i think it like signals to the audience in a quick way that it's like all right this is like shining related and we're, and like i'm dealing with my past because of this and like yeah it was fucking cool too because it wasn't red rum she put murder Yet he right. sees Red Rum because he's looking in a mirror, which is just such a that is like that is excellent. That is a really really good callback, but but different, right? Like it's an inverse. So good. Right. Yeah, that was awesome. Really like that stuff. So I think I would say like this is like a, this like you were saying the signif- This is a huge chunk where it was just like Mike Flanagan really showing like stretching his his wings and showing like how how great of a film of a like horror director he is and like just building up all this tension and like making us care about the characters and it, it, that this part was really really fun yeah and, and and like when she gets thrown back all the way across and, and, and into her body and goes flying off the roof like the way that all seamlessly was cut together and made sense and uh man that was so good um so many things to praise here um but i did want to ask you a question okay it felt to me like because we don't get Dan Daenerys Targaryen in this movie, right? <laughs> we yeah. don't. We instead, yeah. um, but it felt like it was referencing an anime because I noticed there were anime posters on the wall for. I want to say it was like it was like four letters, and I forget what they are. Do you know what they are? Yeah, yeah, it's Ruby R W B Y B Y. Okay, so I have not seen that anime. Have you seen it? I'm familiar with it. I actually haven't seen very much of it, but it's interesting because it's an American anime. It's okay. not. It's not like from a Japanese studio or anything like that. It's American made, and it's actually Rooster Teeth produced it. Oh, interesting. So I assumed it was referencing that a character in that. It, is that is that well, seem so to be accurate? <laughs> I, from what I understand, there's a character who like can manipulate uh, thoughts and things very similar to like getting in somebody's head in The Shining. Okay. Um, Are they so eyeless that or something? Th- is that why she was eyeless, or was that just to be scary? Oh, I, I don't think the eyeless thing. No, I don't think so. But maybe. But uh, I think it's I think it's specifically just like the like the mental telepathic power type stuff that they're they're referencing. Yeah. Anyway, cool. And and, and I kind of figured they wouldn't be able to probably get, secure the rights to something like Game of Thrones. <laughs> right. And, and maybe that would have yeah. just been too, and too, like, it might take you out of it, honestly. Uh, I honestly just thought that they were going to be more, it was going to be like generic girl on a dragon kind of thing. You know, right. I was expecting a dragon to show up, but maybe not necessarily <laughs> like Drogon. Yeah. Well, she doesn't even write, she writes like a, like a Pegasus or something in the, in the book, right? So that, yeah, she. I, I kind of like that they went a different route with it. Honestly, and I thought it yeah. worked. It, it worked well. So no, no complaints there. Yeah, and we're talking about favorite moments. So there's no way we can overlook this part. Uh, there is the baseball boy who's abducted. Oh yeah, dark man, brutal. They he fucking went there with that scene. Yeah, I, I, absolutely incredible. Jacob Tremblay. I don't know if you're familiar with like Room, but the actor who played this little boy is like the most legendary child actor right now. Like they got him to like yeah. Really? No, I haven't seen Room. Yeah, so he he absolutely killed it again. And I actually have a really funny like behind the scenes thing to read here. 
According to director Mike Flanagan, the performance of Michael Tremblay during the first take of his death scene was so intense that it surprised and scared the other actors, including Rebecca Ferguson, who was who was so horrified she was stammering and couldn't get her lines out. When the, when the scene was over, a grinning Tremblay jumped up, covered in fake blood, high-fived his father, and walked over to the craft services to get a snack, leaving Ferguson and the rest of the cast shell-shocked and traumatized. <laughs> Man, that is that is awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool just to know, like that, like th- I mean, this kid is a brilliant actor. Wow! And just like at the age that he's at, and to to have cast him in this role and this absolutely horrific. This will be the scene that sticks with me for sure. Like yeah, this, it this was. sort of like murder scene that happens here. Like I was like, all right, they're gonna cut into him, and then they're gonna cut. He's gonna yeah. scream, and they're gonna cut away. Did not happen like that. They've they lingered. We saw it all happen. They were sucking out his steam. It was it was gruesome. Yeah, and and honestly, uh, you know, perfect uh, rendition of what goes down in the book. Like it's just like yeah. that. And it's just as brutal. And I also wanted to shout out uh, Kylie Curran, who plays Abra. Like I felt like her yeah. screaming after in the scene as well was just as intense and really matched like the sort what was going on there. And she's I think she's a great talent. I think we're gonna see her in a lot of stuff here. I, I was really impressed with her in this yeah. movie. I agree. And she does badass well. She does that that sort of like uh, the character is so strong and like he- like angry at what's happening and uses that and uses her power and is scary in that sense um, in, in a way. And I, I think she nailed all of that, uh, you know, throughout. And then um, I don't know if we've technically got to it yet, but the scene where um, Danny is forced to locate her and then he finally gets to talk to her and then they do the swap and Danny is in her body. Um, her performance of that is very, very good. That's a hard thing to do. Like I am now People an adult laughing in my and- body and, Man, yeah. that was good. Yeah, exactly. People were laughing. People in my theater, yeah, people in my theater were laughing and cheering, and like they were really into the when she when Danny like took over her body and like the attitude she was giving the crow. Yeah. And that's and that's like some of the best stuff um, with Zan, uh, Zan McLaren too. Like I think that was some of the the chance he got to the way he was interacting with her and and how he sort of all of a sudden realized that the tables had been turned on him and and that you can see sort of this creeping fear and all this stuff was very very good. And and then yeah, I love the idea of of the the car crash killing him. So this is another pretty large chunk here. The cat leads Dan to an empty room where he has an, another visit from Halloran who instructs him to protect Abra. Abra tells Dan what happened with Rose and says she, she can track the cult if she can touch Bradley's baseball glove. Dan tells Billy about the shining and they travel to the murder scene and exhume Bradley's body to retrieve his glove. Then they go to Abra's house where they recruit her father, Dave and devise a plan. Using an astral projection of Abra as bait, Dan and Billy lure the cult members out and shoot most of them dead, though Snakebite Andy, before dying, telepathically manipulates Billy into killing himself. And, and that was a big change. And honestly, um, as sad as it was, I think it's a good one. Um, I think it yeah. really shows the power of Andy. It shows how dangerous, like it's, you know, you think about like the cornered animal being dangerous. Um, in this moment, she's dangerous because she's literally dying, but is able to lash out. Um, the one thing I guess I kind of wanted a little more of was, uh, I wanted to see Danny's grief over this moment. Um, but I think it gets sort of swept up in him losing Abra. And so, although we see him almost drink again, it's kind of unclear whether or not he's reacting to Billy dying or Abra being missing and what weight each thing is being given. And so it's a little confusing, um, whereas I, I really wanted to see him react to the death of his friend who essentially saved his life a little, a little more. 
and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but also Dave, the, the Abra's father gets killed yep. here in, in a little bit. And so it's like the, the kind of com- combination of both of those things happening and neither Abra or Danny really dealing with that in any like significant yeah, way. Abra did not seem to, to, yeah, have any, have any real, I mean, she, at the end we get the nod to it and she says that he went on and stuff, but still like that's her dad is dead. So Right. I don't know. It it felt a little off from the emotional truth that I was expecting there. Yeah, I would say like I mentioned in the book coverage, one thing that I really felt like was lacking was just that this idea they, they got a, they got one over on Rose so many times and they never they never suffered any losses. They never really had many hardships through the through the book. And like it seems like they came out pretty, pretty unscathed. And here it's like, I think it's, I think, think Flanagan kind of felt the same way reading the story and saying like, all right, well, there needs to be some sort of loss in some way. But yeah, there wasn't any significant, uh, there wasn't any moment of them dealing with it. So it's like, I think the the killing was maybe for shock value. And then, and then there was maybe an intention to give Danny and, and the drinking, I think is a combination of everything, obviously, like his almost drinking. But um, I think this is kind of uh, a moment where he changed what Stephen King did. And I think that it was for the better, but it didn't necessarily follow through. And it's probably because a large chunk of this ending here uh, is spent being a shining uh, homage. Right. So the other, one of the other major differences I thought was the, the way that shootout goes down at the campsite. Um, there was a lot more true, not there. They were all armed. They all had handguns. There's a big shootout. Um, we get a little bit of some, some sharpshooting from our characters here, um, a fairly efficiently killing like six members of the true, um, in a way that maybe stretches a little bit of credibility. If you really think about it, who these characters are, <laughs> um, and they're th- just the fashion way they can quickly shoot them all. And, and, and honestly, I kept remembering how, uh, how real this scene felt in Stephen King's hand in the book and how sort of movie cinematic in, in sort of the cliche way right that people say like this felt very very hollywood um in a sense and 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 i don't know i guess that's a minor criticism i have for it i i, I get why it was changed i get they, they wanted to take out a lot of the true here so they didn't have to worry about them later but um it just seemed very easy to kill all of them yeah to continue on rose's lover crow daddy kills dave and abducts abra drugging her to suppress her shine Dan communicates with Abra, who allows him to possess her temporarily and force Crow Daddy to crash his car, killing him and freeing Abra. While Dan and Abra reunite, Rose consumes the cult's remaining stockpile of steam, healing her wounds and vowing vowing revenge for their deaths. Dan decides to return to the abandoned Overlook, believing it as a dangerous place for Rose as it is for him and Abra. He starts up the hotel's boiler and explores the building, awakening it in the process. Dan revisits the rooms where his father, Jack, influenced by the Overlook, attempt to murder him and Wendy. At the hotel bar, Dan is offered alcohol by Lloyd, his father, now a ghost bartender. Once Rose arrives at the hotel, Dan and Abra confront her by pulling her into the astral plane in the form of the Overlook's hedge maze. After a failed attempt to trap her in one of the boxes, Dan instructs Abra to flee before being overpowered by Rose. As she drains his steam, Dan releases the Overlook's ghost from his boxes, who proceed to surround and kill Rose. However, the ghost possessed Dan, who begins to hunt for Abra. When she manages to momentarily free him, he tells her to flee the hotel. Struggling with possession, Dan returns to the boiler room, which becomes engulfed in flames. In his last moment, Dan sees a vision of himself as a child being embraced by his mother, Wendy. Abra watches helplessly as the hotel burns down. 
Yeah. Okay. So that is a lot <laughs> you've just covered there. Um, before we get into all this stuff of the overlooked, um, just cause I know that's going to dominate the rest of our conversation. I, there was a moment where, um, when Danny and Abra, I think this is way back when they first meet, uh, Danny says, he's talking about the shining. He says, I used to call it Tony. I thought it was an, my imaginary friend, but it, like he essentially says it was just the shining. It was his power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was let down by that moment because I I loved how mysterious Tony is as a figure. And I felt like King maintained that mystery a little bit in Dr. Sleep. He never quite defined what Tony exactly was. And here it, it just felt like, oh, there's this mystery of the shining that was never solved. Let me just go ahead and, and, and align wave it off right like oh it's just my power and that was all it was right i don't know i i just wasn't a big fan of that well yeah i i yeah i agree with that for sure it's just like leave leave it a mystery and and you know i I think when he said that i felt like that was a moment where he was saying like it was just my power but then it was going to turn out that it wasn't just his power at the end you know i felt like it was maybe one of these moments where it was like misleading in order to like deliver a surprise later could we have seen tony at the end or an outline of because remember sometimes you would see this like silhouette of shadow that would be tony Mm -hmm. in the original shining like i would have liked to see something like that yeah something mysterious at the end yeah um so the the decision to return to the overlook i feel like that's exactly the reason why i kind of said it in in our book coverage i was like i felt like Rose was going to go to the Overlook in order to like use the Overlook as a conduit kind of in the book coverage. I said like she would use like the things that happened there, but it's kind of like Danny doing that. Like yeah. Danny's basically saying like, I'm going to, I'm going to awaken the, the, sh- the uh, hotel. I mean, it, it's like the moments of him walking through and like the, every, and it like kind of awakening and everything like it's indulgent. I, it was so much fun to, to see this sort of version of, of the events. And like, I, I, it was really mesmerizing to see these sets again and to see the characters and think about the significance of everything that went on. You know, I, as much as I'm probably going to say a lot of things that I didn't like about some of the stuff that happens here, like I, I felt like the walk through the overlook as long as it was, and it was long, it was like five minutes of him just walking around doing mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, it was, it was still, you know, those, those places just in my mind have such a special, uh, connotation, like a special place. So to see it again, just on, on film in general, I think was, was at least worth the price of admission. Yeah. Uh, so a couple things, uh, one, I thought the, uh, the reason to go back to the overlook was flimsy at best. <laughs> um, the idea that this was a weapon they could use against Rose and clearly this is what we have to do and and I'm going to go in alone and wake it up and like there was all yeah. this stuff that that like it, it I think it just heavily relied on like an elbow nudge and a wink like yeah this is he's got to do this right because right. we all are here to see it like that it's like it relies on you as an audience member knowing that like yeah well we got to find a way to get him here right like that's why we're all here yeah I felt like uh it was like he could have released those those th- those boxes at any time. He didn't need to be at the Overlook. So it's like he could have weaponized them at any point. Yeah, it just, it, 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 to me, it it didn't even, it, it, it almost didn't even try because it was just like, just go with it. It was really what I felt like it was saying. And I think a lot of people were able to. And that's what I, when I say that like this final act really felt like it got very campy in that sense. Like it, it sort of knew that like we're all here to, to celebrate The Shining and we're all here to to sort of revel in the references and revel in the nostalgia. And so it just leaned really heavily into that and, and, and kind of hand waved a lot of story, you know, plot holes you might be able to raise up. It just kind of was like, whatever, just go with it. 
Yeah, and as much as I appreciate some of the things that are set up that are done as direct homages and like specific like references and Easter eggs and things that are going on in in here, uh, it did. This is where I meant. This is what I said about like it felt like Ready Player One a little bit. Like it really felt like this was like some sort of like let's go in and let's check it out and it's a great movie, but let's like dip our hands in and like do something different and and really like I don't know. I don't want to say it's not like, you know, it doesn't ruin anything for me, but it does feel like it's like, it just feels like something that was written as a fan. You know, it doesn't feel like yes. there's any significant story to be told here other than maybe closing up off the boiler situation. So that's really interesting because I think this movie strongly tries to reconcile. We talked about this earlier, reconcile the original Shining book with the Shining film. And the way it does that is it essentially takes Danny Torrance and it gives him Jack Torrance's final moments from the original Shining. Um, mm-hmm. And what you have to do in order to do that is you have to take Danny Torrance's arc and shift it from what we got in the book and into a story about him taking on the guilt and the uh, the mantle of his father and paying for his father's sins in sort of a martyr sense. Right. Um, which, if you remember the novel, um, spoiler for the novel... It's very different. He instead is able to rise above. He's able to shake free of this weight. He 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 talks about his darkest moment to the AA group and is able to uh, have a happy ending where he, he moves on and he grows. Um, so and not linked to his father in that sense um, because his father had already done it right in the world of the novel. So it, it, it changes Danny Torrance's, uh, character arc pretty fundamentally. And that's why I struggled to say that it was a really, really good adaptation of Dr. Sleep, because if you really like that character arc and like where it left him, um, this is a fundamental change. And, and in a way it's going to, whether or not you like it, I think is going to determine how, how strong you, you feel like it, it was a good adaptation of Dr. Sleep. There's a couple things here that like really with, with Danny's arc in the film that they tried to slightly, they just skewed him slightly, like inching him over and over and over until he was like, not really the same, having the same arc as, as the book, like you're saying. Um, like I remember specifically, there's this sort of moment where, he's at the AA meeting and he's getting one of his chips and he's talking about how like this is for Jack Torrance and he's kind of like talking about how Jack Torrance attempted AA yeah, and attempted to do all of this stuff. And, and I think it's changing what we know about Jack Torrance and it changes what's going on with Danny and it's showing like he's dealing more maybe even in this movie than he was in the, in the book with like what went on at the Overlook uh, clearly because King didn't want to retell a story at the Overlook, right. but in this in this way, it's setting up for a confrontation with that we get with with Jack Torrance, um, or like some spirit of Jack Torrance that's lingering in the Overlook. Which we should probably say, like, if you haven't listened to our previous episodes on the book, um, first off, like you can to to get more details. But essentially, uh, the Overlook burned down in the original Shining. The boiler exploded and burned down, much like we see at the end here. So because of that, in the Doctor Sleep book, they go back to the same area. That the overlook was, but the but the building itself is gone. So almost everything you see inside the Overlook Hotel in the film is a complete invention for the movie and not something that was in the in the book. So I think that's worth noting if you're if you're someone who maybe hasn't read the book. Right. So let's talk about this Jack scene where he goes to the bar and he's tempted by the hotel to drink. Yeah. Um you know, I think it's very clearly the same scene that we see in The Shining. 
Yep. Um, again, fun to see something like that. Um, the Indi- thing indicating that was... the, the, the Jack got absorbed by the hotel and given the job that the previous right. uh, caretaker had been given who killed his family and sort of like Lloyd, maybe this yeah. is the cycle that we, we got, right? Although you're mixing a little bit of bartender versus versus uh, like he was a waiter. So there's like, it's kind of like they're taking two characters and blending them because the bartender was not the car- the previous caretaker. It was the It was the waiter, but it doesn't really okay. matter. I don't think too much. Lloyd was the character that Jack Torrance interacts with and like he looked like the the person who was basically Jack before, like the person who went crazy in the overlook before Jack we hear a small story about that um and so like as we see Jack went crazy and he took over this role uh and it's funny because they play with it where it's like is is this entity aware that it's Jack Torrance or is it just the hotel it does become angry at one point and drink the shot and um so that leads yeah. me to think say, like it's got say, some of Jack call him a pup and do some stuff yeah. that's re- referencing the book and yeah you got to take it's got some of Jack in there there was like and honestly like I liked the there was a very like I think there were some lines from the original Shining but I'm not I'd have to I'd have to reread it again to, to really know for certain but when he was saying that how like you know, having having a wife and having a kid and how it drains on you and the only thing you can do is, like, take medicine to, to combat it and so you take your medicine and, like, I felt like that was some of the dark shit that we got in the book. Um, yeah. Coming out of his mouth here. Yeah. So, ultimately, I think it was it was jarring, to say the least, to see another actor playing Jack Torrance. Um, it was hard. I, I don't even really know if I got the full effect of the scene because I was so so in shock of it Mm -hmm. and i would like to see it again for that reason but i guess um i don't know i just felt like this was a a clear point where i felt like less would have been more i feel like stephen king just had the one moment of like a wave from from jack torrance and i think that maybe having less of jack torrance would have would have helped out uh not only just because he was recast but also just it it seemed like a lot and it was like kind of confusing as if as because it's like not really him it's just the hotel trying to play tricks on him but is it him yeah uh i I, it was a long scene and i think that like in an already long movie this this whole overlook portion here is is like they take their time and and i was just surprised at how much we got of like jack torrance here and and you talked about before like jack torrance running through the maze with the axe and everything recast like having having a recast actor doing that again it seemed like a lie like it was jarring yeah. to to to, yeah. to show so much of the recast actors well and like we know how much stanley kubrick pushed uh uh, uh jack nicholson and shelly duvall um, and shelly yeah. duvall to get the performances he got to get this the terror that shelly duvall is able to so perfectly portray and to get the madness out of jack nicholson that is that is iconic and it it just like I don't know you know I don't know how much you know they put into it but it was not the same and and, yeah. and you could tell that this wasn't a a person at the verge of madness and instead it was a visual recreation of a scene and yeah. I do that's what it felt like yeah I want to move into some of the stuff with Rose to specifically talk about like how this movie right. goes down so Rose enters the hotel and realizes and you know when Abra comes in it Abra comes in with Danny before Rose comes in and they end up on the staircase and this was another moment that was just like pretty indulgent pretty on the nose yep. where like they're both standing on the staircase Danny's got the axe waiting for Rose as she comes in we've got the typewriter and he's backing up as she's menacing and, and, and following him up and, and doing similar hand motions and all of that yeah all that stuff. I mean, look, in terms of like swapping the roles and having like somebody with the axe, like, uh, like 
above, like moving away from uh, like, you know, Rose the Hat. I think it's interesting. I think that it's something. And it plays out differently because he goes to hit her, but doesn't work. And instead he gets thrown, which yep. is the inverse of what happens in The Shining. Um, right. But yeah, it felt too, it felt too obvious, too on the nose. Um, and I don't know, man, like th- some people might see that and just go, oh, cool. It's just like that scene, you know, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't let myself feel that because I, I, I was left wanting. And it's interesting because like you keep talking about Ready Player One and, and, and I kept going to it as well. And there was a, like, I gave Ready Player One a pass because I, I kept feeling like fundamentally Ready Player One knows what it is and knows that it is empty references yeah the whole story is about like indulgence yeah it's exactly yeah it's about it's about nostalgia and it's about like the love of fans recreating things and how the world has been taken over by fans essentially and or or a major one fan but regardless like this i it was like i wanted more than that and so i wasn't able to forgive that sort of indulgent scene in the way that i that i was able to sort of either either forgive or even celebrate it in ready player one yeah so we get the moment where danny unleashes all of the the overlook ghosts from his mind and unleashes everything and they swarm on rose and they basically kill her there yeah. uh t- like i don't know if they brought her into the hotel as well i guess consumed and you her. get the forever and ever and ever line and and this is the stuff that it, it was just like um Hey, remember this? Hey, remember this? Hey, look at this guy. You remember him? He he does says this thing that he said in the movie. I don't know, man. It, it 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 none of these entities felt as terrifying, even close, as they were in the original. That even goes for the the naked bathtub woman who who is probably gets the most screen time and is 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 shown to be pretty frightening. But um, even that, it just doesn't have the same effect. Um, and and I think it's because it's the way it's employed. And the way it is sort of quickly quickly resolved, I'm um, in a lot of sense. And um, yeah, you got what? Did, what did you think of the whole the whole big box thing and and the 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 maze scene and it creeping up behind her to to close her and stuff? It was kind of kind of uh, Pac Man y. <laughs> I like that stuff actually because I feel yeah. like that that's like more in line with some of the the Doctor Sleep stuff, like the the stuff we see inside of uh you know inside of Rose's mind, inside of inside of uh, Abra's mind, it, being inside of Danny's mind. Like of course, like his fortress would be like the the labyrinth, like the the maze, and like yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. He, be- like, all that he bested the Minotaur. Fun. <laughs> exactly yeah yep yeah i agree that stuff was that stuff was pretty good uh and like her thinking that she had like abra had changed her her mind in order to create a new defense but realizing that it was actually danny and she's like freaking out about how she never found danny and how they would have consumed him and how he's so powerful even as an adult um yeah. you know i i just think it was it was it was fun it was interesting but then we get into a situation where the ghosts turn after consuming rose and they turn and they consume Danny. Yep. And Possessive. not, but but not before Rose like hits him in the in the leg, which I thought was a dick shot for sure. I thought she like cut his <laughs> wiener off. Uh, it's supposed to be the femoral artery. So we get the. So it's also the implication that he was going to die anyway. Um, right. Right. Which in some sense kind of lessens what happens later to me. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. I felt like I, well, I do both. I felt the same way. But so they it consumes him, but like only one of his eyes turns to that like sort of like 
shine moment and he's like going around with the axe. So so I think that was sort of a reference to the book um, and also maybe the miniseries. Um, although I, I remember seeing part of it. I haven't rewatched it and I want to. We, and we've been talking about maybe doing that as a bonus episode. But I, I think uh, Mike Flanagan has even said that he was in some ways trying to also be a sequel to the to the miniseries as if he needed another thing to be a sequel to. Yeah. Um, and and this was this reminded me of some of the, like screenshots I've seen of how Jack Torrance looked in that version. Okay. Right. Just sort of very monstrous looking eyes have changed. And, and, and that's a throwback to the book where, where Danny says to his father, you aren't Jack. You're, you're just, just a mask. And then we literally get Abra say the same thing to him here in a, in a direct callback to that scene that was omitted from the Kubrick film. Yeah. You just reminded me of something, by the way, just the, the idea of, of Stephen King coming around on some Kubrick stuff. Do you feel like Flanagan was trying to bridge a gap by also trying to make uh, Jack Torrance, having gone to AA, seem more sympathetic and in that way showing that he had some remorse and didn't want to kill his family right away? Do you feel yeah, like sure. that was his way of like, like yeah, like in another way trying to make Kubrick and and St- Stephen King come together? I think, it, I mean, that is a, that is a great reading of the character from the book. Um, whether or not you can say that safely about the Jack Torrance we saw in the, in the movie, it's tough. It's tough to say, but yeah, it's, it's, he's trying to link the two. Um, and I, I, I agree with that. You mentioned the Abra scene. I, I, I did like the, the masked face thing, the, the moment you actually mentioned it in our last, in our last, in our last book episode for the Dr. Sleep, you mentioned the, the moment that, that you felt like there was going to be a mask reference or something like that. And it, yeah. and it was here. Yeah, and and so we he's 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 essentially a thing. He's like a Jack thing. Essentially, at the end, he's he's fully transformed into his father in this moment where he's coming after Abra with the axe. Yeah, um, and like you said before, this is some of the uh, Ewan McGregor's I felt weaker stuff. Like when he when he was doing the transforming from being Danny and then transforming back into sort of like Jack Danny. Um, that like that moment, I wish that they would have had a couple more. I don't know it, takes it, of that or something. It, was, a different it got take. real silly in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it, there are many things Ewan McGregor is very, very good at as an actor, and I am a fan of his. Um, Huge but I, doing doing the the madness that that uh, Jack Nicholson is so good at um, that that sort of madness and that sort of menace is just not really something that's in his wheelhouse and, and unfortunately or it didn't feel like it was it, it was it was drawn out of him in, in the way that maybe someone else could maybe maybe someone else could have gotten that from him but I didn't see it here and speaking of Ewan McGregor as like a, a great one of our finest actors currently working uh I was thinking like some of the early stuff when I knew Ewan McGregor was going to play Danny I was thinking that some of the early stuff with him and his addiction and all that stuff would be like train spotting have you seen train spotting I have classic yeah. yeah so like that's sort of like I thought they were going to go like to that extent where it was like mm-hmm. it was going to feel a little bit like um we got a you know, taste of seeing it maybe but not a taste but not of a it yeah. Yeah, yeah but so that I just kept thinking of that and then of course there were moments of me thinking of Obi-Wan and like all kinds of other stuff that Ewan McGregor's yeah. done and he's a great actor and I just I love he's just him. a big teddy bear man and so it's so hard to, to to be scared of him like I just wasn't ever scared of him I don't know yeah. man I never He's bought great. that he was going to hurt her. That's the thing, man. Like there, there is some real just danger in 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 the the stakes of this man who is trying to murder his own family in the in the Shining, and they try and sort of slap it together here at the end with the with the threatening of Abra. But I never felt like she was in any real danger, 
And um, I think for this scene to really work, you have to do it. And and maybe they, and maybe they just didn't have enough time or, or what have you to set it up. But also the, with the over-the-top makeup, it removes the familiarity and it makes it obvious to us and Abra that this isn't actually him. Whereas what, what would be really truly terrifying is if she thought maybe this is really him. Um, but it, it never really gets into that territory. Um, so in a lot of ways, this scene just didn't work for me. And it's it's really the culmination of the movie in a lot of sense. Um, and so it, one of the things I think that left me feeling very mixed about this film is probably this scene. You yeah. Know, or at least it's a microcosm of a larger issue. And, and this leads into something that I that I think like we've talked about is interesting. He he chases her and eventually like goes to the boiler, right? And yep. this is like that he he well sits she even down says like, like there's one thing you forgot and that's that he turned on the boiler and it's very reminiscent of of the same sort of thing that happens in The Shining where where Danny right. reminds the Jack thing that the boiler that you forgot about the boiler and then it's like oh shit and has to run down there. Yep. And so we see, yeah, and then Danny kind of becomes himself again at the last minute, having beaten this thing and, and like, or like the, the thing realizes that it's not going to be able to get out uh, or it's not going to be able to stop the boiler from going over and, yeah. and Abra gets out and then the whole, the whole thing goes up. And I think I, I, I mentioned in our book coverage how I thought that Danny was going to die at the end. Uh, and then in this case, Danny does die. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about the change? It's him taking on his father's guilt. It's him taking on his father's uh, crimes. It it gives a sense of justice to people f- who felt like maybe there was an injustice vacuum at the end of The Shining. Um, and it ties a lot of things up um, that maybe have been, uh, you know, for a long time not tied up. And um, I, I don't know how I feel about that, honestly, because there's something to be said for a movie that leaves you feeling like there wasn't justice served and that even though we see Jack freeze to death at the end of the shining, um, he's still like the, the overlook persists. Whereas here the overlook is destroyed. And so you get that, that, that sort of bow that is put on the story and you feel like it has come to an end now. And that's one of the things that King didn't like. He liked, he had a story where the overlook burned down. He had a story that ended in fire and sort of a cleansing fire, and that's exactly what we see here now. And in a lot of ways, it felt like Flanagan was stepping in and doing a lot of the work that King originally intended for his book. And um, it's just it's that conflict between Kubrick's version and King's version. And um, you know, we give we give all the credit in the world to King because he's the creator of this story, and you know, he he is full within his rights to want it to end the way that he wants it to end, and. That that is all true. However, when you're also writing the sequel to the movie, you are also engaging with Kubrick's legacy. And this, in many ways, just did not feel like the a sort of movie that Kubrick would would co-sign. Like if Kubrick was alive, I don't know that he would like this movie. Well, that's kind of what I meant with like like leaning towards who was alive yeah, and like who are you I trying agree. to kind of kind of make happy in this situation. I think Stephen King was was made to feel a lot happier than Kubrick would have been. Yep, I agree. And so I think if you're a big Kubrick fan, I think if you like The Shining for its art house nature, if you like The Shining for being weird and, and unresolved, um, <laughs> this movie's going to come in and rub you the wrong way in a, in a lot of the way in a lot of the choices it makes. I was so sure we were going to see that that photo of the party uh, from the end of The Shining where Jack is in the in the photo. I thought for sure we were going to see Danny like see that photo and be like, holy shit, he was here in 1920 and like try to figure out, you know what I mean? Because yeah. that's like one of those unresolved. What the fuck does that even mean? Moments. Yeah, the but Shining. they never look at it. Well, I mean, yeah. like and, and that that does remind me of a moment where we see Rose look down the hallway and see the blood coming out of the elevator. And then she's like, oh, 
Yeah, and like that like, just like, felt so yeah. indulgent to me because it was like served no purpose. It is truly just like uh, we got to have this right, and we got to have her see it. I don't know. Um, those kind of scenes all all felt indulgent to me, like you said earlier. So I don't know, man. I feel like we we've hit on a lot of stuff. I, I don't have much much else. I feel like we're hammering this movie in some sense. Um, but I do want to remind you how much we love the middle of this movie, <laughs> and we love Rose the Hat, um, and how we're fans of the book. We both really like the book. And and we like a lot of the a lot of the adaptation here. Um, I think is very good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, this was a weird movie for me, and it was one that I really struggled to wrap my head around. I feel like if we didn't really do our due diligence and and compare it to The Shining and kind of give The Shining its due at the same time, people people would be kind of the call film. bullshit. So I, I yeah. hope that people understand that. Like I did, I, I ultimately did enjoy this movie. I like like I said, I was very mixed on it, but there were things that I liked about it, things I didn't like. Um, and that's okay, you know. I and I think I'd be, I'd be interested to hear what anybody else had to say about it. If you want to write in, ink to film at gmail dot com. Yeah, and I think a lot of this comes down to taste. Um, we're truly getting into like because some people don't like art house movies. Some people and and or or maybe feel like they're they're snobby or or the implication they don't like the implication that if you don't like the art house movie that you're you're not intelligent or something. And like, um, there's a lot of baggage with a lot of these discussions that can go in and and it's okay to like this movie for what it is and I think it's great and I don't want to like rain on anyone's parade who feels that way um but all i can do you know in this kind of situation is kind of speak the truth of how i felt and you know what i mean because like ultimately anything else anything else is a lie for me and anything else is me trying to like put on airs or something that i don't actually believe so i had to sort of come in here and and defend it and it made me really realize that i do love the shining as an i think in in our in our hundredth episode talking about greatest adaptations i might have even said the shining was like my favorite adaptation of all time right I think I did. <laughs> so it was at least in my top two or three or something. So, you know what I mean? Like, I can't I can't say that and then come in here and and not recognize that in a lot of in a lot of sense, like this wasn't a great sequel, in my opinion, to the movie of The Shining. All, all it really did was reference it a ton. Um, but yeah. in, in a lot of ways, it did a lot to undermine um, the message and the vision of Kubrick's version of that story. So sometime later, Abra talks to Dan's spirit, assuring each other that they will be okay before he disappears. Abra is confronted by the ghost of the rotting woman from the Overlook, but now is prepared to lock up the ghost just as Danny did. So she like walks in and shuts the door yep. and going to lock her away. You know, I I appreciate it for what it was trying to say, like sort of that the torch had been passed. Um, you know, Danny had done, he had made right by Halloran and, and he paid his debt like he, he was asked to. Um yeah, I mean, like, I think it's, I think with the boiler exploding and like Danny going down, there's something beautiful about the merging of the two. I did, I do like the idea that like this time around, the the boiler takes it down and it's this nice like closing chapter for both the the book and the movie. Um, and then yeah, Abra 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 having her moment here to show that like she's capable and she's going to go forward and handle things. Yeah, and I think we got we got hints of an extended universe, which we've talked about. We got hints of uh, oh, there are other people out there like me, or or like yeah. Rose, but worse. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even a line where he says something like, "There are people who stand," which made me think directly of the of the book The Stand, which is being adapted. And I mm-hmm. wondered if he was in some way referencing that, um, which I know you haven't read, but it, it, that would be something to keep in mind as we go forward and maybe cover that in the future. 
Yeah, I saw, I was listening to Flanagan talk about uh, just Stephen King and like adaptations that he would like to do. And he mentioned like Dark Tower is the one that always struck him and he always would, would have wanted to do that. But he felt like it's not really there in the cards for him. He probably will never get the chance. Um, but he apparently put tons of Dark Tower references in this movie. Like it's just apparently covered in it. Okay. Um, I haven't read Dark Tower, so maybe I just missed them. But I, I, I was catching the Stephen King references. I just didn't get into all the ones I caught. I will say that. Yeah. Much. Yeah, there is a lot for sure. Uh, and then there's one other thing that I was reading. Somebody mentioned um, the true knot instill fear in their victims before they feed on the on the shine or the steam and they feel it purifies it. And somebody mentioned that in it, Pennywise believes that frightened flesh tastes better than uh, having, you know, having been instilled yeah. with fear, fear it makes it taste me. better. So yep. there's maybe a connection to be made there that the eyes that they have, the glowing eyes, there's a lot of glowing things in Stephen King's universe. Is there like deadlight connections or anything mm. like that? Who knows? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I like that. The skew, I think the skew, the Stephen <laughs> King is universe is, is strong out there. So S-K-E-U. We'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll see more. But I had a lot of fun with this project and and just overall enjoyed revisiting the, the world of The Shining. Reading the book was fun to get that kind of backstory as well. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoyed this movie. I don't think that many people thought that this was going to outshine the, the Shining anyway. Though. So uh, we hope you enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And if, yeah. if you wanted to hear about our next project, make sure to stick around to the very end. And we're going to we're going to announce the our, our next uh, book that we're going to be reading. Um, before all of that, we wanted to thank a new patron, Ashley W. Thank you so much for signing up. Um, she is now going to get access to all of our bonus content. Uh, we have a new bonus episode coming out every month, and she already has access to the advanced reading prompts we do that let you know uh, what we're doing next before anyone else. So if you wanted to join that and get all that extra stuff, uh, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film and find out all about it. Yeah, thank you so much for being a patron. Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And make sure to join our Council of Inklings because we post polls and interesting adaptation news. You know, whatever we see that, that relates to the podcast, we try to talk about in there. So definitely check that out. Yeah, and we wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music and Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts. Also, if you wanted to help out the podcast in a way that doesn't require any money, you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Those really do help to get the word out about the podcast and continue to help us grow. Yeah. Apple Podcasts now, I believe it's called. But <laughs> I think we have said iTunes like almost exclusively. So that's going to be a tough change for us. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, wherever you can leave a uh, rating and review it is a huge help. So please consider doing it. Uh, all right, man. So I think we're at the very end here. So we got all we got left to do is announce our next next project, um, which we have talked about in our bonus episodes and stuff. But I don't know if we if we've put it out on the episode proper. So we are going to be covering Leviathan Wakes, which is the basis for the TV show The Expanse. Right, and especially I think the first season. Um, I believe that they line up pretty 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 well. So, um, the first thing we're going to do is read uh, a, a, a roughly a third of the book and talk about the book and then we're going to watch the first i believe two episodes of the expanse the show talk about that and then move through much like we did for game of thrones the rest of the season so it'll end up being a four episode deep dive into the first season of the expanse leading up to i believe the release of the new season which is coming soon so if you're a fan of that show we hope that you really check out those episodes and uh yeah we would love to see you for those ones yeah, I'm excited. I mean, this is a project that I've been waiting to watch because we were going to cover it for the podcast. So I'm happy it's finally here. Absolutely, man. 
All right. This is a long one, but we thank you for sticking with us. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.